was a plan for a big money super fight. What happens when the best boxer or the best wrestler face off? And what would happen when they tried to book Jack Dempsey versus Ed Strangler Lewis? Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Welcome back, everybody, or welcome for the first time. I don't know who you are or how many times you've been here. How did you even get in my living room? Wait a minute, you're probably in your living room. What am I talking about? What's going on? Who am I? My name's Nick Gossard. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a pro wrestling booker, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling historian, and I am here with the Clone Saga Spider-Man to my Spider-Man 2099. Says nothing good about either of us, but here we are. It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you, man? Chongo Saw's ready? Oh, yeah. You got three minutes, freak show. Actually, we have more time with that because we're on the Hippodrome Express, and time is a false concept when we travel through it like we do. It sure as heck does. These practically fly by. I don't know how much you're enjoying hearing this long-form story of wrestling in the post-Gotch era. And if this is your first episode and you know a little bit about wrestling history, or you just want to dive in, welcome. Uh, have fun. I hope you enjoy it. hope you know what's going on. But if you don't and things are just making zero sense, because who the heck are these people we're talking about, go back, start with the Stanislaus Abisko episode, work your way here, just to kind of flesh out the characters, the stories, and everything that had happened up until that point, because we are going to be talking about the year 1922 in pro wrestling. We're going to be talking about Ed Lewis and Stanislaus Abisko, Joe Stetcher, John Pesek, men like this. And before we get too deep into it, I always want to put this disclaimer out there that if you've read biographies or you watched a YouTube documentary or maybe an old shoot interview or autobiography, you may say, hey, I heard this went that way, or according to this biography, this match was for this, or according to cagematch.com, blah, 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 blah. Well, heck, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Unlikely. But it's possible, because record-keeping from back in this day, not exactly pristine. We are making the best out of what we are finding and uh, hopefully we're as close to on the money as possible. But always want to give that little disclaimer. Yeah, I don't. If you're the type of pro wrestling fan that wants to pick and split hairs with the only show going back 100 years and doing these fine-tooth archaeological combs, then you're exactly why pro wrestling can't have nice things. And shame on you. That too. Well, we're going to pick up today, right where we left off last time, in the aftermath of the... John Pesek, Mariplacina, super fight that turned into an absolute brutal beatdown in Madison Square Garden at the tail end of 1921. And after that November 14th match, it became harder to run wrestling matches in New York City to the surprise of absolute fucking nobody. And much of this was due to the Athletic Commission forcing old-time rules back into the sport. Before that match, they had already banned dangerous holds, if they were used to crank and injure opponents, thanks Ed Lewis's headlock. But soon after, they declared all matches two out of three falls, with the match becoming a single fall if the first goes past two hours, and it becoming a decision after a third hour. Clear as mud, right? Yeah, clearly old school as mud, old mud. Here's the the backstory is this: there's a long history of Greco-style dominance in New York. The athletic commissioner. 
Muldoon was the longtime champion. He was one of the last great shoot and shoot competition Greco champions of professional wrestling, and he really had a, a sort of a bone to pick with the whole idea of it being a work and and submission holds ideologically as a different style grappler. So so there's that from the gate. Another key rule that massively changed how wrestling would play out in New York City is removing pinfalls and replacing them with flying falls and rolling falls, hoping to make matches more high-paced and more exciting. Deputy Boxing Commissioner Tom O'Rourke declared that fans will not want to see pinfalls ever again, to each their own, I suppose. So what that means is no longer is it going to be forcing someone's shoulders to the canvas with a one, two, three from a referee. It's going back to those late, mid-1800s, early-1800s rolling and flying falls, where all you really have to do is just fall on your back, your shoulders touch the canvas, or two hips and one shoulder, and that's it. So you could literally do a back roll and be considered pinned. So there, so it's much more of like a, a like a judo kind of rule set in some ways, and very limited, and very much a low-level kind of screw you to the submission style in general, because that's very Greco-oriented and not very shoot. And submission friendly. Yeah, it's, it completely restructures how wrestling had to be performed, how it was advertised, how it functioned as a sport. Because, yeah, when it's no longer, you know, you use these moves to turn somebody over, hold them down for a one, two, three. It's now, you could literally, you know, like I said, you could literally just throw somebody with a, uh, you know, back suplex. They landed on their shoulders for a second. Boom, that's a fall. So it changes the way you're telling a story completely yeah that's that's a really tough and a, a big shift because i mean you can't even play guard man you put your back on the mat you're done this is a totally different rule set to sort of tailor the game to what the new york style is which is stand-up greco wrestling and this this decision by the athletic commission will be discussed and touched upon many times in this episode because it was a big deal and speaking of big deals the press would be covering the fallout of the Pesic plastina match with public outcry and the commission wanting to investigate it as a criminal conspiracy. Meanwhile, Pesic was back home in Nebraska, with the Omaha Daily Bee quoting him as claiming Plastina refused to wrestle him. Furthermore, Pesic declared that he can throw Plastina anytime he wants, providing the trust buster is willing to actually wrestle. So do you think that's him trying to get goat him out to his home his home turf out in Nebraska and using the B as sort of his social media or how do you think he's playing that? I think it's just him playing the hey man this guy didn't want to actually wrestle so I don't know what you expected out of me because you know kind of making himself shine a little bit more in the situation instead of him being the dirty son of a bitch who was gouging eyes. He's now, hey man, I was just trying to have a wrestling match. I don't know what that guy came for. And if you're curious, yeah, I'll beat his ass in a real wrestling match anytime. So it's 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 one of those things where it's like he just did the dirtiest thing on uh on, you know possible, and then on top of that, he's just shoveling more dirt on top of Placina. Yes, it smells like you know sand out of me. Somebody gave him some good cooking on that one because now he's playing the babyface after really causing the whole thing. Yeah, because he had to work kind of, you know, hard just to keep his career going. In the February 14th Arizona Republic, they talked about how Pesic was given a hearing regarding his Nebraska license to wrestle and claimed that he wasn't under any orders to hurt Placina and that he, quote, treated Placina as he had in turn been treated, but had not gouged him in the eyes or butted him as charged. So 
this was so bad that in Nebraska, his license was being reviewed, and he's just having to say, oh, no, I'm, I'm an innocent person here. I never did these awful things. So uh, what's the word? Oh, lying. He was lying about it. Yeah, and but I, he's, he's benefiting from the fact that if there was any kind of pictures or any kind of footage or any, all of it's so low resolution, secondhand, thirdhand recounts. I mean, because essentially this was like his era's, you know, the Mike Tyson biting of Evander's ear kind of athletic scandal, right? And it, it, Oh, a very, very good comparison on that. And it, yeah, it, it, it reverberated throughout the whole press. His name now had a very different meaning than it did walking into that. And according to the Omaha Daily Bee, this cost Pesek the title due to bad press and being banned in New York City. They reported that Stetcher was now scheduled to win the title. It's weird that they clearly indicated the work nature of wrestling and its title changes, but at the same time looked at the reasoning as a shoot. Who could say what uh, what they were trying to accomplish there, but uh, that's how it is. The dirt sheets in their earliest forms. Yeah, seriously, the B is like patient zero when it comes to dirt sheet uh, publications. Shout out, because they're, they're, they're trying to give spoilers. This is 100 years ago, man. And at the same time, Stanislaus was back in regular action and defeated Tootsmont in Denver on November 16th, according to the Pueblo Chieftain. And in New York City, it was becoming harder to book matches due to the flying and rolling falls instead of the three counts. So simply doing a back roll or falling onto your back could be a pin. The old-timey three-point pin with either two shoulders and two hips and a shoulder. Uh, nobody was excited about this. Not the wrestlers, not the fans, not the press, but business must go on. Tex Rickard booked the Stanislaus Zabisco-Ed Lewis rematch at Madison Square Garden for November 28, 1921. Under these new rules, he spent a reported $5,000 to make a belt to present to the winner, like Oof. he did with boxing title matches. Zabisco had already won over the Ed Lewis belt, as we called it last time, by winning the championship. So there was a new, fancier belt on the line for this first match in Madison Square Garden under these new rules. And the weather outside of that on that day was terrible with heavy rain, and the match only drew 7,000 people. And imagine being at a point in the industry where drawing 7,000 people with no television, no radio, was considered a, a bad day. Yeah, that, you know, that's really, it's, it's remarkable for a couple of reasons. Because on the one hand, you're talking about fighting such an uphill battle with the rule change and trying to get your market back and get your fan base back. And then on the other hand, you've got the biggest name in the game in the main event for a brand new title for the for what will now be the 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 new standard in championship, you know, the strangler strap as they say or that was the last one. But yeah, this is it's it's remarkable that 7,000 people is what it shook out to be because this rule set, I really don't know who this favors. I guess Stanislaus is a little bit. Well, you're about to find out because Ed Lewis took the first fall in 17 minutes with his headlock and pin, and the crowd went wild. The new rules came into play in the second when the referee called a rolling fall as Lewis was escaping a neck and crotch hold. The crowd hated it and booed the referee. The intermission between falls is probably all that kept the crowd from getting violent over it. So again, it's it's literally the transition points in a catch rules match with with pinfalls is now considered a rolling pin according to the old slash new rules. So by the virtue you're in a you're in a crotch hold, 
and you do a back roll out of it, congratulations, you technically just pinned yourself. That guy gets the win on that fall. Well, that tells you how much the fans of New York hate that booking if it's turned the Strangler babyface in New York. Exactly. And in the third fall, Lewis threw Zabisco with a body lock but couldn't get the pin. Lewis tried to grab a headlock, failed, and went for a wrist. Stanislaus pulled him up and brought Lewis down hard, then used a double arm lock to pin the Strangler at just under 15 minutes. Stanislaus Zabisco was presented with both the Lewis and the Rickard belts as the crowd cheered. So we're already seeing the effects socially and um, strategy-wise of those new rules where the crowd sees it for, for the first time in a big match and hated it so bad that they were probably would have wrecked the building if the, uh, the outcome hadn't been a little more entertaining. Yeah, and uh, Stanislav's two belts didn't didn't get as pro didn't get as over as he should have, darling. The rules, the the negativity of the rule set really uh, kind of outshined what this match could have been. Had they just done it in the standard rule set that they had in place prior? At least that's just Chongo's opinion, you know. And despite the big moments like this match and still large crowds, wrestling was having problems in New York City under the Walker Bill that allowed boxing in the States, and the commission was fucking with the rules of wrestling. The Connecticut Labor News published the article, Wrestling Game is Getting getting Bumps About New York, describing how boxing is pushing wrestling out of the city because of these rules, even though, quote, wrestling still has a large following in New York, despite the general impression that it is a fake game operated by hippodrome artists. No lie there, but damn, what a harsh thing to say. Yeah, that's a cold. That's a cold way to to say an ugly truth. But the fact is, there's a lot of states that deal with that bullshit, where the athletic commission just sees an opportunity to way overstep because it isn't. We all know now in the modern era that this isn't standard competition. This isn't a prize fight, and yet some states still try to govern it like that. And it's just so they can get as much money as they can, and it's no different here. Exactly. And another big twist uh, that caused problems for wrestling in New York, the city of Albany refused to let wrestling or boxing use its armories. The, quote, the wrestlers had no place to work outside of Madison Square Garden where Jack Curley couldn't get in behind a battalion of shock troops. (laughs) That is a fantastic line. I don't, uh... You know, that, that sucks they took the army away because the armory was like, when I envision these previous stories where we've talked about the stuff that's gone down at the armory, it's like original Monday Night Raw season one ballroom in my head to me, equivalent of this era. It yeah. was, it yeah. was so cool. Yeah, and uh, keep in mind, the armories were used as the skirt around by Curly to not have to get a proper promoter license yep. because the armories were under a different control. Well, now a lot of New York cities were pulling those armories back so without a license, you can't promote. If you can't promote, you are fucked in that town. Yeah, and you're seeing the proto sort of strategies that that different territories and bookers and promoters are implementing to sort of siphon off their areas through through a different means. He sh- he basically shut Curly down in New York. And there would be further consequences. The January first, nineteen twenty two, Salt Lake Tribune reported that the Caddick Stetcher match would most likely be called off over the new rules. William Muldoon was quoted as saying, Rolling and Flying Falls are 100 years old, and I guess they are good enough for present-day wrestling. As long as I am connected with the New York Athletic Commission, they are to count. And I feel like I should have read that in a Grandpa Simpsons voice. 
Yeah, or like a, I don't know, maybe even a Mr. Burns or a Mafia voice, because he was just like flexing, like his. He's like basically, I'm running this shit. As long as I have a say, this is what we're doing. And if it's good enough for the old timers, it's good enough for you, Marks. Yeah, and it just it, it just shows how disconnected he was from the realities of wrestling, you know, forty years after his heyday. So he was really just trying to bring back what he thought was best for the business, not understanding what was actually best for the business. And with the Caddick Stetcher match canceled, Caddick's manager Gene Malady published a letter, according to the Omaha Bee, on January twelfth, claiming that Stetcher ran out of the match because he would not consent to grapple under the rolling and pinfall style of wrestling. The author did point out that if Stetcher hadn't backed out first, Caddick most certainly would have done it as well. Uh, the Sant. <laughs> The Santa Ana Daily Evening Register on January 12th called the whole thing a death blow to wrestling in New York. Quote, Rickard went after a stetcher Caddick match and both told him they'd push plows for the rest of their days before they agreed to anything but a pinfall. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a hard line in the sand by both guys, and it just tells you again how terrible and not over this rule set is and how out of date it is with what they they're basically killing their own ability to have a great run right now yeah it's like imagine if they changed the rules of boxing to the like imagine it was like a lead up to like you know tyson versus holyfield and then they changed the rules to the point where the two biggest stars went i'd rather man the drive through at fucking arby's than work under these conditions Oh my gosh! It's I guess some things in pro wrestling aren't are never new. You know, <laughs> so the more things change, the more they stay the same. That sucks. So things started shifting out of New York City with Ed Lewis defeating Dick Daviscourt in Wichita on January sixth, then heading off to Cuba for a match there. Sandow turned down a rematch with Zabisco for that month, wanting further big matches in or near the Midwest over that rule change. And on January 16th, Stanislaw Zabisco had a match with John Olin, famous for the Olin title lineage that once upon a time existed, in Columbus, Ohio. The match ended at 19 minutes when the two men fell out of the ring and Zabisco landed on top of Olin, knocking him unconscious. And I know it's not how it played out, but I kind of picture Olin being like Wiley Coyote, looking up as like part of the cliff falls on him. <laughs> he looks up and like the... The shadow just gets big over him as his eyes bug out. Maybe John Olin held up a sign that said, Yikes, before being squished. Just the dreams that I want to live. Oh, man. I bet it was a nightmare, though, because that probably hurt. I just wonder if that would have counted as a rolling pin or a flying pin in New York. Yeah, you have a guy like Stanislaus Zabisco fall on you. I assume he gets up and, like, Olin was, like, smushed into the concrete. Like, just kind of, like, partially just flat, yeah. Yeah, just flat. Like, he got ran over by a steamroller. This is just the world that I want to live in, and sadly, it probably didn't go down like that. And now we're going to get to a point where I do want to put a content warning on this episode. Um, if the discussion of sexual abuse, sexual assault is too much for you, this is the time to turn it off. This is the time to skip. I will put in the description of the match what time to uh, skip it to, because we are going to discuss something not graphic, but still upsetting to many people, myself included. On January 22nd, the headlines announced a terrible situation had been uncovered. Tex Rickard had been arrested for sexually abusing seven girls, 
aged 11 to 15. This was in the press nonstop, as Rickard had been the business face of boxing and wrestling in the Northeast. According to the victims, Rickard, who was married and lived on Madison Avenue, would use the Madison Square Garden swimming pool as his hunting ground. He would take them to his suite at the Garden Tower and assault them. What in the name of, like, predatory behavior is this? This is like a... This is so bad that 100 years ago, this stuff was, they were still doing the same stuff. It's disgusting that someone in that position would have the ability to use such a public and flaunted space to abuse someone, right? Like, he's not doing this in some hidden pool. He's doing it at the, the, the Madison Square Garden pool. It mean, what it means is that they knew about it, and they only got rid. They used it and put it out there when they wanted to get rid of them. Is my guess. Oh, it's it's a hundred percent not a. It's shocking because it happened. It's shocking because it actually came to light. I mean, unfortunately, people in power are garbage. Always have been garbage, and the fact that this even got as far as a trial is honestly shocking for the time, because the trial took place in March of 1922, and there was plenty of drama and strangeness leading up to it. One of the girls, Nellie Gasco, was kidnapped by ex-boxer Nathan Pond. She was found on a farm two weeks later, having been offered a bribe to take back her accusations. Other people were rumored to have been bribed and or just couldn't be found later. The papers told stories of Rickard being a casino and brothel owner out west. When the trial came about, a familiar pattern would appear for powerful men being outed as sexual predators. His attorney focused on the victims being older than had been announced in the press, the 11-year-old being actually a few years older, and that they all had small-time arrests for begging, shoplifting, and forging checks. Rickard had the cream of the social crop testifying to his character, including Kermit Roosevelt, the son of the former president. So we're, we're already seeing a pattern that still holds true today, where somebody rich and powerful gets accused of misconduct, and the first thing they do is turn it around on the victims for being slightly older than reported, for having petty arrests, because Lord knows that people who have been pushed onto the fringe of society are not the you know, are the easiest people to victimize. But now we have to disparage the character of the victims. The rich person trots out his fellow shitty uh, human being, rich uh, people, witnesses. And we can clearly kind of see where this is going. Yeah, it's the exact same playbook that these guys do today, and it sucks. I'm just, I really have this feeling like somebody, like you said, the amazing part is that it, that he got outed. I, my guess is, this is a dirty game. He pissed off somebody. I don't know if Curly could have got all the way to him. Like you said, he couldn't get through the, the army at the gate, but I'm sure he had some people that were very, had a vested interest in seeing this guy fall. Yeah, it, things like this don't happen by accident, particularly in the pre-internet era. And it, but there was even stuff like he claimed that on the date of one of the assaults, he was at the Dartmouth, Pennsylvania football game with witnesses. Though he couldn't remember who won or what colors the team jerseys were, he explained this away by claiming to not really like football and it was his first game. On March 27th, the jury returned with a not guilty verdict after only an hour and a half of deliberation. Well, I'll say this. I do... I don't want to say... I don't say that that's ample deliberation, but I will say that, like, I could see how someone who's not into sports ball would not really know the score or the team specifics, but that is a thin alibi at best. 
And I mean, if if that's all he's got, does he have like? Can he get to like some ticket scrap or something? But it's interesting because it sounds like it doesn't matter what he said; he would have got off either way, right? It seems that way. And it gets even worse in a way. Though free, the press speculated that his career as a promoter was finished and his reputation was now too tarnished for anyone to be near him. But as we've seen throughout history, if you're a powerful man who runs the only real game in town, everyone turns a blind eye to keep earning themselves. Yeah, especially in New York, man. This is, you know, this is how things are done back then, man. This is, from what I understand, this is how, you know the that neighborhood and that community takes care of its own they kind of enforce their own ways and whether it happens legally or illegally people get put in their place and the the sort of racketeering style is no different here with the pro wrestling in february in the midst of all this Ed Lewis defeated Renato Gardino as part of the undercard for Stanislaus Zabisco versus Earl Kotick on February 6th at Madison Square Garden. The place was packed with 12,000 fans who stormed off in a rage when Kotick lost both falls with rolling falls, barely touching the canvas with his shoulders while Kotick winning the middle fall that was more certain. The new old rules short-circuited the storytelling format that the Trust had perfected over the last few years and audiences were increasingly pissed off to see it happen. Yeah, see, what you're seeing play out in real time is one of the first examples of two, an ideological difference in what pro wrestling should be getting played out in this war as a, that the fans are ultimately the ones who are suffering instead of everyone working together to put on the best wrestling possible. It's like, you got the Athletic Commission trying to prove their point, and they're trying to, it's just... Instead of doing the best possible matches they can, everyone's trying to be right. And this is when we get to something I love and I'm super excited to talk about. On February 13th, from coast to coast, the headlines shouted out that Jack Dempsey was challenging Stanislaw Zabisco to a mixed rules fight. Quote, all KO Zabisco and half a dozen other champion wrestlers in the same night. Dempsey was clearly getting itchy for in-ring action of any kind. His manager, Jack Cairns, and Tex Rickard agreed that too many boxing matches would ruin Dempsey's draw. So Dempsey had been dicking around with vaudeville tours, exhibitions, and small parts in movies. A good boxing gate at this point was more than a top wrestler would make in a year, so a worked mixed match would have been financially huge. The problem was Zabisco, who allegedly wanted no part of it. Sandow and Lewis were pals with Dempsey and wanted that payday badly, so a change had to be made. So you have Dempsey, who is just, I mean, he was one of the best boxers in history, but he's not, he is also a man that understood razzle-dazzle and show business and all the other outliers. Dempsey reminds me a lot of The Rock, you know, totally. a guy who exactly. was able to take his sports background, even though boxing was more legitimate, and branch out into pop culture crossover iconhood, is, if that's even a word. So we have a man who goes, man, I got nothing else going on. Let's work a wrestling boxing super fight. And it was big money on the table, a big, really kind of cool idea that would have taken off with the press. But the problem is we had the more dignified Stanislaw Zabisco, who probably hated working wrestling to begin with, and sure as shit didn't want to put over a boxer who could barely wrestle. See, and that further, if the fracture of the ideology further plays itself out in a shitty way here because 
if we had just had a champ that was willing to work, I'm sure Strangler would have wanted that money. I'm sure there would have been plenty of guys in that spot that would have been wanting to work with Dempsey. And the problem is, he's, you know, uh, Zabisco's so worried about looking legitimate that he's turning down the most legitimate opponent he could possibly be matched and the biggest legitimate payday he could possibly garner. And if you wonder if this is the only time you're going to hear about Stanislaus Zabisco, his stubbornness getting in the way of what's right for business, oh boy, you're going to be hearing some things in the episodes to come. Meanwhile, speaking of Zabiscos, on February 21st, Vladik Zabisco beat Joe Stetcher at Madison Square Garden, with the Rolling Falls being a deciding issue, with the crowd angrily yelling for the referee to be overruled when he called one for Zabisco. According to the Bridgeport Telegram the next day, quote, the large crowd of spectators, displeased with the results, surged menacingly about the ring. They were dispersed by the police after several minutes of excitement. <laughs> I, I like how they make a near riot sound kind of fun. Like, ooh, several minutes of excitement. It's like, were they, were they just having a swell time? It's like, no, they wanted to kill people and would have. Yeah, it, it, it shows, like, it, maybe there's a little bit of, like, a, you know, a good word in with the press kind of undertone of them trying to spin it in a positive way for the regime in power there because, man, people do not like this damn rule set, and they are really trying to shove it down their throats. And this is the question I keep asking myself. Were they using the shitty rules as part of the storytelling in order to keep big matches in New York City and then shifting the blame onto the commission and William Muldoon? So that's kind of what I feel like. I feel like that's something Sandow would have orchestrated where it's like, oh, you, this little group of people want to keep their foot on wrestling and make it terrible. Well, fine. We're going to keep coming back and making it terrible. And then all the uh, finishes are going to be under these rules and it's going to piss people off to the point of violence. But their ire is not towards us. It's towards the referees and the commission, which is fucking brilliant in my book. Yeah, I think I, it's got to be because it smells like a Sandow. Only Sandow's the the mindset and the genius to pull something like that off. Because what it is, is it's like jujitsu, Using what your opponent does against them. He has the situation where New York is kind of being a dick. So he, to play ball, is going to use them being a dick against them. So they get all the dick heat and it makes him look... And by proxy, his stuff looks that much better. What a fantastic uh, strategist. On March 3rd, 1922, because of Stanislaw Zabisco's refusal to get involved in the Dempsey super fight, a title switch had to be made. Ed Lewis beat Stanislaw Zabisco to reclaim the title in Wichita, Kansas under modern rules so nobody would have to deal with the flying or rolling falls bullshit and the questionable outcome thereof. Which is smart, because you're establishing that your rules are the correct way to do it. You put the biggest match together under those rules, and the pinfalls make it a far more legitimate, less complicated, less controversial finish for a big title switch like that. Yeah, and to take it a step further than that, when the previous switch happened between the two, it happened in New York under the prior rule set, but with the stranglehold banned, so now they can still point at their own New York. The New York fans could, they set it, Sandow set it up in a way where the New York fans are going to look at the New York Athletic Commission like, we lost our champion because they wouldn't fight here because of the rules you implemented, and this is your fault. So it's another stroke of genius by Sandow. Yeah, the way they just kicked all the dirt back into New York's face, both 
with the audience and with the press is brilliant. And in this match in Wichita, Kansas, Zabisco won the first fall with a body scissor arm lock in 41 minutes, which is brilliant storytelling. You know, you have the bigger, older champion taking taking the first fall with a long, drawn-out battle because no matter what happens now, Stanislaus still looks very strong. And they double down on it with a bit of uh, dirty wrestling. Uh, the second fall went to Ed Lewis in 18 minutes. Zabisco had been working Lewis's arm, and when Lewis pushed or punched, depending on who told the story, Zabisco in the face. Zabisco fell back. Lewis jumped on him to apply the headlock for the pin. Stanislaus's manager claimed a foul, but the ref didn't acknowledge the complaint, claiming he didn't see a punch. Zabisco came up for the third, seemingly dazed from the, quote, head trauma from that uh, punch to the face. And Lewis caught him with a headlock after only three minutes. Jack Herman, Zabisco's manager, claimed that the punch knocked his client loopy and he couldn't properly defend himself. It was a great way to keep the dignified babyface strong and to put the title on a heel champion. Lewis was presented with both belts. It was tremendous and perfect and met multiple levels of precision simultaneously. You made the babyface look strong. But you beat him, but you left him a reasonable out. And that's about as good as you can do. Yeah, and then it also not only made him look strong up front, it made him look sympathetic. Because he lost from an illegal punch, the referee didn't see it. He comes out to the third, and he's he's just not all there after, after that punch to the face and falling down. So it really made... Stanislaus looked like a hero babyface who got screwed, and it made Lewis look like the dirtiest heel in the goddamn universe. So it took all the all the, all the all the heat and put it onto Lewis while keeping Stanislaus looking like a million bucks. Both men walk away with what is needed not only for themselves but for the business as a whole, and hopefully for a Ed Lewis Jack Dempsey super match. That's what we want to see, and I have to say that is a classy job of doing business on both sides on the way out to after, when you have to do a title change because of a previous disagreement. You know, they, they could have tried to be a lot shittier to Zabisco on the way out, and they, they did that real classy. I like that. There's good touches in there. And a detail on this, which as a wrestling promoter, you know, made my heart uh, beat a little faster with terror. The match drew a small crowd of 4,900 people, with a gate just under $17,000. Lewis had a 5K guarantee, and Zabisco's guarantee was 7000 So the profit margin was very slim for promoter Tom Law. So, you know, you've been, at no point in the wrestling business have you been, has it been safe to book a star and hope for the best to make a lot of money off of it. Yeah, apparently, especially in Wichita. Wichita can never draw. Ed Lewis biographer Steve Yohei claimed that this is most likely the first wrestling match recorded for radio broadcast. Radio would be a game changer for sports in the U.S. in the 1920s. Men like Ed Lewis, Jack Dempsey, Jim Thorpe, Babe Ruth, and others would reach new levels of recognition and popularity thanks to radio. We're now kind of getting into, you know, it's not just the motion picture footage being shown and shopped around the, the, the nation weeks later. It's now more immediate where they record the match for radio, which can be broadcasted the next day. Yeah, and I don't know if you are a personal fan of that medium. I love listening to calls of play-by-play growing up on the radio. 
where it, it elicits that visualization. The radio is a special way to have a broadcast or a play-by-play presented to you. Yeah, I love it because it does, as you said, it activates the imagination. So you have to have those masterful storytellers on the microphone explaining what you're seeing and putting as much personality onto it as possible, which sometimes can make it far more exciting than what's actually being seen in the ring. Makes me think of the soccer game in the... Uh, in the Simpsons, there was a. They go to a soccer game, and you know Kent Brockman is like, "Hey, passes, 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 holds it, holds it, holds it." Meanwhile, the Mexican announcer is like, "You know, pass, it a pass, and a pass. He holds it, holds it, holds it, and makes the product seem so much more exciting. Makes these stars even bigger. It was a boon for sports across the nation." Well, and that was exactly a hundred years ago. And here, a hundred years later, we have regressed to the point where yahoos like you and me get microphones. Which, frankly, should not be allowed by law. Wanting to cash in immediately, Sandow announced on March 16th that a $5,000 bond had been placed as a challenge that Ed Lewis would defeat Jack Dempsey within 20 minutes of a mixed rules fight. Dempsey's manager, Jack Karens, claimed that Dempsey would defeat Lewis in either a mixed rules or even a straight wrestling match. How's that for talking Ooh, shit? That's spicy. That's like telling, that's like a wrestler telling Mike Tyson they're going to knock him out. You say that you're going to beat the other guy and what they do best, that's bold talk right there. That's not just the heavyweight champ saying he's going to use the hands. That's, that's, that's some showmanship, man. Take my money. And at the same time, there was a lot of sports pages speculating that Joe Stetcher, who wasn't terribly active, was next in line for the title, offering dirt on the scheme to make it happen. An article was published in most sports pages in the United States. I found it in the Steubenville Herald Star that opened with, quote, the final trick stuff which will be pulled by the Wrestling Trust will make Joe Stetcher the champion of the world, end quote. Claiming the trust made a mistake with, a Vl- with Vladik Zabisco beating Stetcher, so they had to put the belt on Lewis because it made more sense for him to beat Stanislaus. Remember when everyone thought wrestling was real, according to some people? So they're just straight laying out that Stetcher is the babyface that's going to get the title, but Stetcher lost to Vladek, so they had to have Lewis beat Stanislaus, because that would make more sense for Stetcher to then beat Lewis to keep everything babyface heel with the wins actually meaning something. Brilliant wrestling booking, yes, not what was planned, not in the least, and it's hilarious that the press is just openly discussing this. It's like they're just like putting their speculation out there on Facebook like there's some bitter vet on the Indies <laughs> who thinks they could book Raw better. I don't <laughs> that's amazing cuz bad press and bad booking is better than no press and no booking, darling. Meanwhile, the only match Stetcher had that month was a match against Mahmoud who has been discussed many times as a background character and featuring popular referee Captain Killery According to the March 28th Boston Post, quote, Killery, although small of stature, has plenty of nerve to enforce his rulings and also the knack of keeping the mat men on the canvas moving along at top speed. So, cool, we have a minor celebrity uh, of some kind referee that the fans are excited to see. I didn't have uh, time to really look up why this guy was famous, but I just think it's funny that they were doing it this way. And that match went down on March 29th with Stetcher winning in two straight falls, 
41 minutes for the first and 16 for the second, with Stetcher looking strong the whole time. So, you know, once again, we have a, a, a fake terrible Turk being defeated by the all-American farm boy, and the farm boy just running him over twice in a row. But the ref is more over than either guys in the match, man. What, what, how did he get that much more press than the terrible Turk the third? I'm just kind of hoping that uh, you know this this captain Cap Killery. Yeah, I like to think he showed up with a like a sea captain hat or something. Exactly. Maybe. What do you think? Are you picturing like the little cap, or are you picturing something more piratey? I'm personally thinking like what what uh, Captain Crunch wears. See, I was going like half Captain Crunch, half Captain Kangaroo from like the the shoulders down. Either way, I think it's hot. Obvious merch opportunity. Dude. Ed Strangler-Lewis, on the other hand, was busy for the remainder of the month, wrestling five nights a week, missing only two shows due to skin infections. He closed out the month with a big match against Jim Wandos in St. Louis on March 29th. The match drew 5,000 people. Lewis won the first fall in one hour, 17 minutes via headlock. Londos won the second in just under 15 minutes via Japanese armbar, which I looked up. This is a variation of the straight armbar that MMA and jiu-jitsu people are familiar with. The variation is that the extended arm is trapped under the armpit. Like most catch holds, it's more about controlling and pinning, not cranking for a tap. Plus, it's easier to work the hold from that position. Because as we've seen with like Ronda Rousey matches and some things, if you get like that fully extended armbar... It's hard to like make it look like a work at that point. Meanwhile, if you get that like under, you know, almost like putting the the elbow in a headlock with your uh, blade of your forearm under the elbow, it can look like you're cranking the hell out of it and fighting for it while doing nothing. Yeah, that's exactly right. It keeps it it keeps the arm in the sweet spot where it's not going to get snapped, and you can really put some upward rotational looking torque on it where it really looks like you are hyperextending it, but it's just. Right in the perfect sweet spot where they can't tell the difference. And then Lewis won the third fall with his dreaded headlock in 22 minutes. It was a story they've told a number of times before with Londos being the superior but undersized grappler who couldn't overcome Lewis's 40-pound weight advantage. Again, we see these stories again and again and again, but they are timeless in their effectiveness. Yeah, and it's like every guy's got his signature move, his hold. The, you got the Japanese arm bar guys. You got the toe hole guys. You got Strangler with his both the stranglehold and the headlock. You, you know, there's a couple other guys that's got some signature moves, and it's pretty cool how that's all shaking out and sort of developing too. And across 1922, Billy Sandow saw that New York was going to be a problem for the foreseeable future and looked to set up territories in the Midwest and other places. For example, Sandow set up his friend Sam Avey as the promoter in the Tulsa area, which grew into a strong wrestling city where Lewis would draw very good numbers over the years. Avey became a powerhouse in the region who oversaw the early careers of Leroy McGurk and Dick Hutton. That's awesome. It's just like this is where the, the start of these formations of the territories as we know them are like the original seeds are getting kind of plowed and planted. Exactly. Kind of what were known as the NWA territories. A lot of these just grew out of the 
pre-existing promoters in the area that would align or not align with Sandow's vision of wrestling. So yeah, you see a guy like this being put into business by Sandow because he saw a smart businessman in AV. So he was like, cool, man, I'm going to financially back you. We're going to promote through you. You're going to be the guy for this region. And that would more or less blossom into a hereditary territory for a few decades. Yeah, that became one of the hotbeds of all territory wrestling through its entirety of life, you know, until it got killed off by TV. And here's some heartwarming news. On March 13th, the Omaha Bee reported that John Pesek and Larnie Lichtenstein had made amends months after the Plastina match and its legal fallout. Quote, Pesek came right back and said that Larnie Lichtenstein was this and that and that he wouldn't have any more to do with Larnie. All of which makes us wonder why the Ravina Grappler permits Lichtenstein to arrange his matches and act as his manager. So, man, I don't know about you, but if somebody called me this and that, I'm probably never going to talk to him again. Yeah, especially when the choice was he called, he could have called him Larney the Carney. <laughs> and he still chose this and that. that those fighting words. But I don't really know. I couldn't find too much information on the relationship Lichtenstein really had with him at that point. Since Sandow's brother had taken over as his manager, I don't know the details, but it does seem like he was back in the fold with the trust. On his spring tour, Ed Lewis bested Earl Caddick in Wichita on April 3rd, Stanislaw Zabisco on April 19th in Kansas City, and a two out of three falls match. In April, Lewis was offered a $25,000 guarantee to face Pesek in Chicago, according to the Richmond Palladium and Sun-Telegram, stating it was the largest purse ever offered a wrestler in Chicago, far exceeding what Gotch had made against Hackenschmidt a decade earlier. Man, Chicago is just, like, so bipolar when it comes to pro wrestling. Like, we hate pro wrestling. We'll never have it here again. Let us give you the most money that's ever happened for a match. And that's one of the reasons the match didn't happen. Chicago started stepping up its involvement in wrestling. This is the city that felt shafted and ripped off by the Gotch-Hackenschmidt rematch and never again looked at wrestling as anything other than a con. According to the Washington Times, Chicago's commission insisted that non-trust wrestlers should get title shots in that city or that the trust needed to stay the fuck out. Chicago barred a Lewis versus Abisco match, for example, stating that Plastina should get a title shot instead. So wow. they, were, they were kind of taking aim at the trust and the trust business plan, saying, oh, two trust wrestlers want to put on a match here? Nope, that ain't happening. You got to have somebody like Plastina or a different trust buster involved. Otherwise, we call Hippodrome on this, and it ain't happening. But we still want to give you $25,000 guaranteed. But no, it's so crazy. So it's like you see this sort of two sides developing where it's like you got Chicago and New York on one side and then sort of the trust on the other. It's very interesting how these alliances are forming. And it gets even weirder because on May 16th, we have a rematch between John Pesek and Mara Plastina in Chicago. So at some point, Plastina had kind of come into the fold a little bit with the trust he was i don't know if he maybe he, he they offered him a contract based on the beating he took i don't know if he got away from uh, from marsh i don't know the details all i know is that kind of moving forward you would see plastina playing ball with trust wrestlers and i feel like this one was probably a test to make sure that was the case because he was up against somebody that put him in the fucking hospital 
by ripping on him just half a year before. Yeah, that's a you know that's a pretty uh, pretty deep act deep act of faith to to be willing to ask somebody to show to be willing to work with this guy. They really put him through the ringer and then asked him to wrestle the same guy again to prove that he'd play ball still. Yeah, that's ballsy. Yeah, it is. But I think also somebody like Plastina knew where the money was and the easy money was. Because, you know what, yeah, you, you stood up to the machine and you got your face wrecked. Well, you know what, you get another opportunity to work with the machine, you swallow your pride a bit. I mean, Zabisco did the same thing by doing worked matches when he came back. At a certain point, the smart businessman has to go, okay, you know what, I'd rather be cashing checks than ch chasing pennies legitimately. Sign me up. So him and Pesek went at it in Chicago, and the much-hyped match ended in a three-and-a-half-hour draw after both men were so exhausted that the City Athletic Commission stopped it, despite the match being advertised as to a finish. Days later, there was an investigation by the Athletic Commission, according to the Bridgeport Times and Evening Farmer. Despite the match being exciting, there were charges that, quote, John Pesek and Marin Plastina did not do their best in this wrestling match. So charges of working a match. Shocking. And again, I love the old-timey harsh accusation. They're accused of not doing their best. Yes. <laughs> Dang. You know, they're going to have to wear the dunce cap in the corner for that one. Yeah, I, I, I feel, I love how the wording gets so much, like the intent is so much harder between softer words. Like, I feel like in these days, if you publicly called somebody a scoundrel, it would be pistols. Yeah, right. yeah totally. I, I do have to say, though, it does, it smells so beautifully of a Sandow fuck you to Chicago, where it's like, okay, that's the, that's the bloke you'll, you you want to see. I'm gonna have him do a hippodrome for me to to sandbag you guys, you fuckers too, just because that's the one guy you don't think will do it. Well, I I don't feel like that was a hundred percent the case because clearly Placina had to earn his place. He had to earn the trust. Oh yeah, the trust. But it, but it's like they did put still try to make him <laughs> a little bit strong because I feel like the deal was this is gonna go to a draw one way or the other because Placina already you know ate his shit sandwich, but we can't have him beat Pesic. So despite being advertised to a draw, we're going to find a way to skirt that, keep everybody intact booking-wise, still give them a slam-bang match where two wrestlers go 100% for three fucking hours so the crowd is thrilled, but force it to be a draw due to exhaustion. And it looks like Chicago was not too happy about it, but what could they do at that point? It's, it's that malicious compliance. Like, oh, you want a match with an outsider? Cool, we're going to give you exactly what you asked for, but it still has some fuck you on it. Oh, yeah. The fuck you is deliciously garnered, darling. In Boston on June 7th, Ed Lewis beat Earl Caddick again. Um, or as the Cordova Daily Times called him, Earl Craddock. I don't Woo! know why the typo made me laugh, but it did. It made me laugh, too. John Pesek defeated Dick Daviscourt on the undercard of the same show. Yeah, I, I do love looking at these old papers where sometimes names are spelled completely wrong. And I want to know, like, was that a typo error or did they type it out and just be like, I don't fucking care enough to change this? Yeah, or is it some sort of, like, backhanded fuck you? This is our town, pal. Welcome to Boston. After his Boston win, Lewis and Sandow had a training camp in Colorado prepping for a European tour that ended up not happening. 
There, the two men formed a friendship with Joe Tootsmont. Joseph Tootsmont was born on January 18, 1894, in Garden Grove, Iowa. In 1904, the family moved to Weld County, Colorado. Toots was a farm boy and grew up big and strong because of it. He was six feet tall and walked around at 260 pounds. And no, he did not have much fat on him if you look at any photos. He learned wrestling via the Farmer Burns Correspondence Course and had his first match in 1912 at the age of 18, which was at a carnival wrestling match in Greeley, Colorado. He tried his hand at being an acrobat as well, but excelled mostly at the mat game. Mont's career took off when Farmer Burns discovered him while on a scouting tour, and Mont followed Burns back to his camp where he honed his craft. So that is a hell of everything going right in your life. This is a man who got the correspondence course. He had just the genetics for it. He grew up on a farm. You know, we, keep, we always discuss the farm strength and how that's in tenacity and how that's almost impossible to top in competition. And then while he's being a carnival wrestler in Greeley, Farmer Burns just strolls by, checks him out. is like, hey, you young fella, you want an opportunity in the wrestling business? Yeah, what a Disney movie. Like, the guy whose correspondence course he took to learn how to do the thing, he got to go, like, offered him a spot in the Wonka factory. Like, was like, come back with me, kid. I'll teach you how to be, I'll teach you how to be a real wrestler. Oh, yeah, no, if Disney did a movie about this, Mont would officially be a Disney princess. Yeah, it is. An over-Disney princess, I might have. That's amazing. That just the the luck of that, like the guy who you studied his books and his correspondence course from, was the guy that offered you the spot to come learn with. That's pretty remarkable in and of itself. And after training in the Martin Burns camp, he was during the early part of the 1920s. Mont was billed as the Colorado champion and wrestled in Colorado, Utah, Idaho, and California on the regular with programs against other local top guys in the Southwest, and with people like Ad Santel and Taro Miyaki, a Japanese judo jiu-jitsu practitioner who came to the United States after a stint in England, doing challenge matches, exhibitions, and wrestling matches. Kind of like uh, what Maeda was uh, doing and other top judo guys were doing. Uh, so it, it really did make him a mid-level attraction. It made Mont a mid-level attraction, that is, because he's wrestling guys like Ad Santel, putting them over, getting the kind of exotic matches against guys like Miyaki, and then just going 50-50 with all the local top guys in the Southwest. Yeah, and getting he's one of the first prototypes of like an indie top guy who's working with the national talent coming in. He's the state champ, or Bill is the state champ, so he's like the, the promotion or the area champ, and then he's getting to work and get to look good but not too good with the upper names and sort of build that spot. That's cool how they're doing that. And when Lewis and Sandow made friends with him, Mont was the wrestling coach at the Colorado Agriculture College, later renamed Colorado State University, and he had a lot of ideas for the wrestling business that lined up with what Sandow envisioned. These, this would form a friendship that would last decades and reshape the wrestling business. Meanwhile, Joe Stetcher had spent most of May and June hyping and, quote, training for a big match against Charlie Hansen, a Farmer Burns-trained wrestler originally from Sweden, but then Hansen had to postpone it due to tonsil surgery. 
So throughout the summer, Stetcher honestly seemed far more interested in playing baseball than in wrestling. On October 31st, according to the Albuquerque Morning Journal, John Pesek won a decision over Casper Wyoming grappler Jack Taylor in Taylor's hometown. There was originally a fall when Pesek had Taylor in a body scissor and half Nelson, and the ref thought Taylor was giving up, but the two judges reversed the decision because Taylor wasn't submitting. He was protesting to the referee about a foul he received. Pesek won the decision in three hours and four minutes for some goddamn reason, and collected his $2,000 side bet. The crowd was not happy about any of this, and, quote, a near riot followed the end of the match in which several blows were struck by, but no one was injured. So, Pesek, again, he goes out there, he uh, riles up a crowd to the point where the crowd wants blood, and there's a fighting in the goddamn audience with probably security having to slap people around to quell the, uh, the situation. Yeah, man, that guy is a walking riot machine, and I also like how they were cooking the books with that stupid finish. They're like, "We're gonna piss you guys off, and we're cashing out on this side bet that no one else bet on." Exactly. On November first, Joe Stetcher beat Charlie Cutler in two straight falls using his body scissor to secure both, to the surprise of no one. According to the New York Herald, quote, "The scissors hold expert was in tip-top shape, while Cutler was fat and flabby." Ugh, that's it. Yeah, body shaming isn't cool, gang. It isn't cool. Yeah, and, and way to show your bias for hairdressers. He's like, the scissor holder is just so fabulous. <laughs> the lines are perfect. On November 9th, the Lincoln Star published the article, quote, Curly dumped by Matt Trust, reporting on the Sandow group, leaving Curly out in the cold, taking Pesek and Stanislaw Zabisco, while Joe Stetcher and Vladek stayed with Curly. Quote, the birdies which flit hither and yon are twittering just now that the old wrestling trust is fractured, and they carol the tidings that Jack Curley, once its boss and guiding genius, has been shooed right out into the cold, cruel world without any further assistance from Strangler Lewis, Stanislaw Zabisco, and John Pesek. The same article stated that Pesek is probably next in line to win the title, but what a what a fanciful way to talk about how the the trust had broken apart and uh, had gone in two different directions, all stemming from Curly's inability to promote adequately in New York City and Sandow Bridge branching out and taking over the Midwest. Yeah, that was pretty, that was a lot to unpack. First of all, he said twittering. So he like broke up, he's talking about the breaking up of the NWO in two sections. I smell a shoot work with the Curly thing because Sandow is a genius at taking bad real-life stuff and then turning it into worked gold. Like, well, you suck at this, so we're going to go with it. And he, I imagine there's a bit of a hippodrome behind this express. And speaking of hippodromes, on Boston November 10th, Lewis beat Toots Mons. Leading up to the match, papers like the Boston Post claimed, quote, few will concede that Mont had more than an outside chance. But Lewis gave Toots one of the three falls to make him look good. Once again, he knows, keep your friends looking strong, otherwise it doesn't mean anything when they put you over. And I laughed when reading the Boston Post on November 13th, 1922, when the writer posited, quote, the quick upset of Toots Mont by Lewis for the third fall the other night, a matter of but little more than two minutes puzzled many of the fans who cannot understand why the other falls took so much more time. There were several explanations. One is Toots had, this, had set the pace for the greater part of the fray against a man much heavier and stronger than himself. 
Consequently, he was tired when the champion really went after him. Another thing which you may have noticed, the final hold put on Toots was a reverse headlock, a birdie of a grip, and a sure killer when clamped on by a man of Lewis's strength and experience. Though I personally have thought of another possibility. What's the word for it? Oh, a, a hippodrome! Lewis would do for Mont what he had done for Londos in the past, find ways to get him over without having to fully put him over. He had Sandow and Lewis behind him, which was enough to make anyone a national star. Yeah, I mean, he's he's got the formula down. Make him look good, but not too good. Make him look strong, but leave him an out. Give him a reason to come back and think that next time their guy's going to get the job done. Whether that's a step, whether that's taking away the hold. You, it's just, you're seeing all of the things that have become almost standard trope be uh, sort of galvanizing and becoming what they are for the first time and how well they worked, man. It's yeah. brilliant. And this was the perfect person meeting the right person at the right time in the right place because, again, Toots was a regional star in Colorado, you know, in, in, in the Southwest. And by becoming pals with Sandow and Lewis, you had the top two men in the business wanting to keep you strong, wanting to make a star out of you. And even if he didn't have the goods to get it done on his own, he had the machine behind him. So it was just perfect timing, perfect alignments, perfect everything for the magic to happen. And speaking of magic, I tried so hard to find details on this. On uh, November 18th, the Topeka State Journal discussed John Pesek introducing two new holds at the Topeka City Auditorium, beating Chet Sarles of Oklahoma, calling them the Green Frog Hammerlock and the Grasshopper Snip and Leg Hold. I wish I could find details. If I find more, I'll post them on our social media. But I want to know what a grasshopper snip and leg hold is. Yeah, and a green frog hammerlock. So was he going like more like kung fu animal style? Or was he like trying to like get back to his southern roots and grab you like a bullfrog? I don't know where that's coming from, but that's hot. If, if I find an answer, I will post it on social media. And at this point... Any discussion of John Pesek in the press puts him in the same conversation as Lewis, Caddick, and Zabisco, so his star was also rising. November 26th, Ed Lewis announces to National Press that he will personally bet $25,000 that he could defeat Dempsey in a mixed rules match. So, yes, they're still trying to get this thing put together. They're still hyping it in the press. It's still the thing that pretty much everybody wanted to see. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, literally 1922, 100 years ago. You know, that much more, you know, you see what the Paul brothers are doing now and McGregor and Mayweather did a couple years ago. There's nothing new. And this, the, the idea of the big money super fight, it just, it, it just shows how truly archetypally genius Sandow was. On November 27th in Chicago, according to the Chicago Daily Illini, Joe Stetcher beat John Freeberg 24 seconds into the sixth round. I only mention this to remind everyone that Stetcher was still wrestling and to wonder what kind of round system they were using. Yeah, they must have gone like full boxing after they were just so, they've been so hot and cold on wrestling. They're just like, you guys can just wrestle with boxing rules now. The headline on the November 30th Topeka State Journal was, Dempsey accepts odd match with wrestling champ. Jack Cairns, Dempsey's agent, announced that his client accepted three matches for the Al H. Woods Theater promotions, including the long-sought-after boxer-versus-wrestler match. 
The clipping concludes with, quote, the bouts are still only in the talk stage. December 2nd, Goshen Daily Democrat announced that the South Bend Board of Directors voted to forbid, quote, big-time wrestling bouts. The board claims, quote, an undesirable class of characters follow such attractions. So I love that we're starting to see towns pop up and be like, we don't want the big wrestling in here. You know, not just because it's hippodromed, not just because it's dirty betting possibly. We just don't want wrestling fans overrunning our nice town. And frankly, I understand that. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have seen my face. I was like, eh, you know, I, don't, I don't completely disagree with that. You don't, not, not all polite society wants to associate with us, us as those peoples, you know. Hippodromers and whatnot. December also saw Joe Stetcher putting up a couple of weird ones. On the 9th in Chicago, neither him nor Yusuf Hussein could secure a fall. And in Milwaukee, according to the uh, Claire Wisconsin on December 26, Stetcher won one fall against Paul Martinson in what was supposed to be two out of three. But after 47 minutes of wrestling, the match was called because they had a midnight time curfew for the building. So just a couple of inconclusive, poorly planned schmazes, I guess is the only way to discuss it. So made spectacle against lesser opponents, non-wins, non-loses, means nothing. Who the hell knows? Yeah, probably just some quick paydays, nothing to, you know, just kind of keep everything from being too big one way or the other so it wouldn't affect any issues on the outside. Yeah, just kind of get guys like, all right, brother, let's just get our shit in and go home. Exactly. What's the finish? All right, let's call it in the ring, daddy. On December 14th, Ed Lewis defeated Stanislaw Zabisco in another rematch in St. Louis. Stanislaus took the first fall in 41 minutes with a flying mare. The second ended with a headlock pin in 24 minutes. Zabisco claimed to have hurt his shoulder in the second fall and thus fell prey to Lewis's arm lock attacks in the third, which ended in just 15 minutes, again keeping the former champ strong and sympathetic. The old, oh, the kind of dirty move, the, the dreaded headlock hurt my arm when I, was, uh, when I was thrown with it, and now my arm's too hurt to fight back adequately in the third. You know, it's a story we hear again and again and again, but it worked again and again and again. Yeah, this is the beauty of back in the day w without the internet and the things that you could run the same match literally night after night, town after town, and it would be new to them. And this is an article I loved. Uh, December 21st, Washington Times had two articles about how unpopular William Muldoon was as boxing and wrestling commissioner. <laughs> It was over the rolling and flying fall rule that mostly killed wrestling in New York City and how he was trying to keep a number of big-name boxers out of New York like Jess Willard and Johnny Kilbane. This nixed a possible Willard-Dempsey rematch in New York City. The article reminds the reader that January 1st should see Muldoon removed from his position. So yeah, it's, it's gotten to the point where Muldoon is now, by trying to like do what's right by what he thinks wrestling is and what boxing is, he is now just the ultimate villain in the sport because he's just old, out of touch, but still somehow in control. But I like how they are, are like heralding and announcing this motherfucker is out January 1st. Yeah, it's like, don't worry, things can turn around as long as we get this asshole out of here. And it did seem like it wasn't a definitive thing. It seemed like he more or less had to be you know, renewed, re-upped, recontracted by the state. And I feel like they just spent an entire year shitting all over this guy and his bad decisions to make sure his name stunk in the press 
hopefully making the city look to somebody else. Another, this is going to be some shocking news. So, are you sitting down? You better uh, be sitting down. I I'm hope so. Down. Okay, yes, I am. Yes. The Omaha Daily Bee uncovered a truly shocking scandal on December 24th by exposing Billy Sandow and Max Bauman as <gasps> brothers. <gasps> what? Wait, wait. I know, I know. I'm, it, it took a lot out of me, too. Wait, wait, they put out a lengthy article on the topic, wondering what could be cooking when two brothers manage the top two wrestlers in the world. Max and Billy denied that, quote, they are steaming up a title match between Pesic and Lewis merely for the purposes of pulling down some big coin and handing the public a dead package. My God, I never thought I could love a man even more than I loved Billy Sandow before hearing that. And now to find out that he's been working everyone on some Kaiser Soze with his own brother. It's double brilliant, man. Yeah, it's just funny because they've been doing, they've been working angles like this for well over a year, and now the press is like, whoa, 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 what are they trying to pull? What are they trying to pull? The same shit they've been pulling for a year, you goof. Yeah, dude, apparently you haven't watched the twin sitcom because they've been pulling this okie doke a long time. December 27th, according to the Topeka State Journal, Lewis underwent treatment for blood poisoning from an infected arm. Again, he just had a lifelong issue with staph infections, boils, various other gross things, the eye problem. Uh, so yeah, this this was coming up again. He said it was scraped against a ring post in Kansas City. Ugh. His wife oversaw the operation, which I assume was removing necrotic tissue like a staph infection. Life before antibiotics sure was great. Yeah, that's not awesome when your wife has to oversee the operation. It's like, what, what are we on the farm here? Oh yes, we are. This is Oregon Trail, darling. And I, I'm curious about this one. The Omaha Daily Bee covered the December 30th show in Kansas City. Stanislaw Zabisco beat Alan Eustace, billed as the Kansas champion. Eustace took the first fall and Zabisco the second. No third fall because Eustace, quote, injured his foot. So apparently they want, had plans for this guy to make him a star at some point. And on the same card, John Pesek received a gash in his forehead in his match against Wallace Dugat that required five stitches. Which makes me wonder if this was like a true hard way accident or if it's an early gig. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Is this a gig? Why was he, you know, they're testing it out, using it under, with an unproven guy? That's very interesting. I thought the same thing, maybe. And now we get to the point in the episode where we usually talk about the big showdown that everything has been leading up to. But what was the end result of Ed Lewis versus Jack Dempsey? Nothing, that's what. Dempsey spent the first part of 1922 acting in Hollywood, doing vaudeville, and touring Europe. He returned in the summer to find Tex Rickard buried in accusations and scandals, and thus unable to reliably promote big money boxing matches. He also had Muldoon wanting to nix rematches and matches that would have turned out, you know, big audiences for whatever fucking reason Muldoon was doing anything at this point. So the money idea of putting together a super match worked against his buddy Ed Lewis, of course made all the sense in the world. He was bored, he wanted to be productive, and he also wanted the payday. And it wouldn't have even been the worst thing he had done. He'd been doing exhibitions with Al Jolson and Douglas Fairbanks, so why not the most famous wrestler in America? The two teams worked to secure dates, locations, and other basic agreements, but sadly, it was not to be. 
Much like the Gotch versus Stetcher match that was equally hyped by fans, fighters, and the press, it simply faded into a legend that might have been. So the year comes to a conclusion with all this scheming, all this planning, everything trying to come together, putting the belt on Lewis, trying to hype what would have been the biggest sporting event of 1922, and it just didn't happen. And it never would happen. Circumstances did change for both Dempsey and Lewis and their marketability and what they were able to do. It was just uh, something that could have happened, two ships passing in the night to create magic. But unfortunately, kind of ends on a bit of a uh, anticlimactic note. So we've kind of taken the belt back onto Lewis, put Zabisco back into the role of you know, top dignified babyface without a title. Pesic is surging. The press is hating William Muldoon. The fans are hating William Muldoon. Everybody's hating William Muldoon because he's standing by his Grandpa Simpson view of wrestling. And it's kind of setting the stage for some very interesting things as New York might now open up to be more of a wrestling town, or will it? And a strengthening territory system throughout the South and the Midwest as the, the regional promoters are strengthening their ties with people like Sandow or Sandow outright putting people in business to be regional promoters. Yeah, the, the seeds are starting to take root and where those evolve to what we know of and sort of the histories that we know, we're seeing those things starting to take shape right now. It's really fascinating how this man, he's really like, he's like, Palpatine, bro. He's just the, the ultimate string puller. You know, Sandow's got everything in place the way he wants. He's got the heat on the on the commission and the places that he wants. He's got the talent lined up. He's got the story. He knows how to work everything to his advantage in the press. And you know what? The uh, the Death Star wasn't built the first time, you know? I mean, at least he tried, bro. At least he tried. And we're going to be moving into the year 1923 with the team of Sandow, Lewis, and Mont you know, now known as the Gold Dust Trio, because they formalize the proper concept of that slam-bang type of wrestling that, uh, that became so popular under their watchful eye. But that's a story for next time. Um, in the meantime, you know, go back and listen to the old episodes if you haven't already, if you're a new listener. If you're an old listener, listen to them again. I mean, we just like seeing our download numbers go up. It's all about us in the end. Uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I like to post old articles and photos I find. But otherwise, I'm excited to keep this story going. Oh, yeah, man. This is the genesis of the Gold Dust Trio. Would you say that their birthday was technically in the 22 or the 23? It's, 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 it, there's, a, there's a lot of gray area in that, and we'll discuss it next time. But for now, my name's Nick Gossert for Chango Bronson. Good night, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Cut Prince Martini. <laughs>